This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. If you've been following my escapades, uh, we've been traveling around the United States interviewing some of the brightest and most interesting people I could find. And now, we're headed to Europe to interview an American, the irony. We are speaking to Minta Dial, who is one of the most intelligent marketers I've ever had the privilege of speaking to. Minter is a marketing consultant, so he's often in the ear of a CEO. And we talk about how to operationalize a brand throughout your organization, why employees are more important than customers, and how a school teacher in Chile made a prosthetic limb out of Lego, and what we can learn about organizational culture and branding from that. I'm really excited about this episode, so let's get started. So, who are you and what do you do? So, my name is Minter Dial. I'm an American based in London and Paris. I like to consider myself a speaker, a shitster, helping companies get digital, and I'm also a filmmaker and author. Wow, that is quite an impressive resume. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, I want to start off with the, uh, the shitsterer in terms of uh, helping companies get digital, and you've also got quite an extensive history in um, branding and some, some very uh, strong opinions about branding. So, that's kind of where I want to start today. I was watching um, a couple of videos of yours recently online, and, and you're talking about you know, how brands exist in today's world. And actually, I think you mentioned something about branding for pure players. So, what does that mean? And, and what are your thoughts on that? All right. So, I think that the old version of branding was generally communicated out via with the help of advertising agencies across television screens. Let's say that that was the, the largest version and the most effective v- version of branding that was existing before. Today, things have radically changed because of the opportunity to have accessibility uh, via the internet, whether it's on a device, whether it's on the, on the web. And so the individuals who are within the brand, uh, so those the employees, are faced with a lot greater contact with the customers. So whether it's through customer service, through social media, in the stores or in the traditional manners, the, there's a, a much greater exposure to the insides of the brands. So when it comes to pure players, the issue is that these are the entire existence is again through the screen. So the challenge for uh, pure play brands is to figure out how, what sort of brand are we going to make live in the employees that are working within the company behind the screen and how are you going to express that against in real life brands that are operating with human beings creating unique human experiences through the different methods i was talking about before so i think that's that's the real challenge that pure play brands have is to not forget branding just because they're operating through a screen Mm-hmm. And and so what you're saying is um, historically a uh, a brand or a company would come up with their you know communications message and they would just spend lots of money and push that into people's heads through the big screen in the family room, um, the television or print media or outdoor like kind of the the big exactly. mass market media channels. And now not only do we have 
more fragmentation in channels with the emergence of mobile digital um, and uh, and just exposure and all that kind of stuff, social. Um, but also there's this kind of new emerging area of brands needing to be transparent. Um, and you sort of alluded to it there with mentioning of embedding the brand values with employees. Again, I was I was watching some of your stuff uh, recently and, and you were talking about transparency and branding. And, and this is something that's fascinated me for a number of years. And- Brands are becoming more and more exposed. Um, what can brands do about that? Well, I, I suppose the first thing is uh, consider who you are and get more consistency with regard to that. If you go to many companies and you ask them, what does your brand stand for? A lot of, um, a lot of companies, the situation is that every employee will have a different answer. And that clearly isn't a good start. So having a well-defined brand is good. All right, that's easier said than done, especially when you're a huge multinational. But that is the first principle. The second principle is to believe that your employees need to be your number one fans. Mm -hmm. It's already a tall order for many companies to even think that their customers are number one fans or that their customers should be the center of their universe. That's an it sounds so obvious to say, but in reality, de facto, it's um, a tall order for most companies. And that's very natural because they have so many things that get in the way, like politics, processes, legacy, that stop brands getting, being able to be customer-centric. So the, the first point is be consistent. And the second one is figure out how to make your employees your number one fans. And then that becomes the toolkit to allow you to be transparent. Afterwards, the last point I would say is that it's not about being 100% transparent, but it's about having that consistency throughout the whole course, allowing you to be uh, transparent up until the line that you want. So you keep some things, obviously, like your secret sauces, your IP, and, and other things like it must be secret for you. But for the rest, you must figure out how to be transparent. It's interesting you were talking about how to make your customers your number one fan first, um, as well as employees. There's this great um, talk that I, I don't remember who did it. Um, I will find a link and I'll put it in the show notes and I'll, I'll send it to your mentor as well. Um, but there's a great line from it. Uh, it's, it's also a slide share presentation. And the, my, my favorite line is, your customers like don't love you your customers are just someone else's customers who occasionally buy you um mm. and there's very few brands in the world that people actually love you know we, we kind of mm. put apple up on a pedestal as one of these and and there's probably a few others maybe maybe a handful um that we could probably really honestly say that people love them we have brand preferences but it's not very common that we love a brand so mm. How does one generate that relationship? Like, how do you think, like, what, what steps can a company take to actually building a stronger relationship with customers? All right. So, I, let me, um, I would say, push back a little bit. So, in, in the- I like a bit of challenge. It's good. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, only, it's only a modest pushback. But the, the notion of people loving your brand tends to lead us to lots of people. And I think that's, a, that's the mistake, is that you don't actually really want to have everybody love you. Mm -hmm. you. What you're looking at is a targeted group, which leads me to the notion of having niche brands and, and smaller 
people who you are trying to seduce in the in the in the love game. So Apple has managed to do that at scale, and and there are other companies that are managing to do that at scale. My my belief is that the, the road to getting your customers to love you will be through getting your employees to love you. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually you know what customers first, employees first. I land squarely on the employees first uh, part of that, and and that is your first customer group. It's a niche. It's your employees. And then after that, you have your, your guru, your fans, your gurus, depending on the different people who really have invested and love your brand. And then that's how you, you, you work it out. Afterwards, if you stay focused on them, then your chances are that that might grow. But the, there are many brands, there are many brands in smaller areas that have complete conviction, love, if you will. And these might be more in the B2B area. You know, if you're an electrician, and I, 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 don't have, I don't know the brands in particular, but I can imagine you have some go-to tools that you absolutely love because they fix your problem when you're in front of a customer and you're trying to fix this bloody socket that's not working and you, I, I go for my magic tool. And that creates a love for an electrician because mm-hmm. that's my like, secret sauce. So in, in more niche environments, B2B, where you know your customers uh, more intimately in B2B in particular, you can create much greater love scenario. Sure. Okay. I'd accept that. Um, what I do want to challenge you on a little bit though is um, putting employees before customers. So, Go for it. employees don't, don't give you any revenue. They don't pay you. You pay them, in fact. They're a cost center. So, how, how can you afford to treat them um, before the people that generate the revenue? Right. Well, good point. So, um, first of all, I don't consider them a cost. They must be an investment. And I think that if you look at it that way, (laughs) you will uh, inevitably think about cost cutting and reducing heads and so on. The the nature of it is that your your brand is a, a mark of trust. And people trust the logo, but really... I mean, there's like a sign on, on, this, on your computer that says, looks like an apple. But what is happening is that you're going to be trusting more the people than the product itself. And that's where the real trust comes in. And that trust is vehicled through the employees. Okay. These are the ones that are generating your bona fide trust. When you call a customer service agent and they say, hey, listen, I'll write you back. You're not trusting the brand to write you back. You're, you're trusting that employee to, to write you back. When you have a, um, an issue and you post it on, on Twitter and someone writes back to you, hey, listen, it was British Airways. You've, um, I, I'm, I'm missing my plane. Can you, call, can you make sure that they, they know that I'm coming? And they write back. You're, you're thinking about the individual in that particular case. So um, this kind of leads to the conclusion that we need to inspire our employees to really live the brand. And there's been a lot written in, in the past about um, having a, a higher purpose or a mission statement that kind of rallies the troops behind what the brand stands for. This is great um, story about John F. Kennedy walking through um, NASA. I'm not sure if you've heard it, but um, he asks a uh, one of the janitors, he goes, you know, what do you do here? And the janitor says, I send people to the moon. Uh, because he's contributing to the the grand purpose of what NASA is trying to achieve. Uh, so, 
you know, that's that's a, a great story. Um, I don't even know if it's true, but it's a great story that kind of um, typifies this this notion, I suppose. But I guess my, my question is, does this kind of brand high purpose actually work to inspire employees? Or do you just need to hire good people um, and train them well and those kinds of and, and give them good benefits and that sort of thing? Well, I my answer to that is I think that the the notion of the higher purpose is is not for everybody. And the the main reason for that is that most businesses don't exist to need to live for the next five hundred years. A lot of businesses, I mean, the vast majority of businesses around the world are small mom and pops, right? And they exist because I have a store. I'm trying to make my money to to feed my children, make put them through school, and then at the end of my uh, existence, my hardware store it closes down with my name, or I, maybe I pass it on, but then they change their name and and so on. So that what I'm trying to say is that obviously the 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 concept of branding does vary according to what your objectives are and what your what your scope is. Secondly, then if you are thinking about purpose, I I think it it's there are some areas which are easier to create purpose than others, and in the end of the day. Uh, what motivates people and what gets people riled up is, of course, different. So there are some people that gravitate more towards purpose and might work for charitable organizations, NGOs, or in 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 fields which are doing bigger things like uh, hospitals, you know, being a doctor and so on. So that obviously there are some areas that gravitate more towards purpose. Other areas, it's a little harder to find. And so there you need to find other ways of expressing something that's going to motivate people. What I like to look for is a, a meta-motivator. And the meta-motivator has to be beyond making money. As soon as it's only about making money for the shareholder return or about paying employees, which is one of the big problems, for example, in banks, where it's just about making money, actually in both cases, but for the employees it's about making money. There's no differentiator amongst the banks. Then it's very mm -hmm. normal that the employees just hop like, like flies or butterflies from one flower to the next. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you a bit of a tangential question. Um, Go for it. I've kind of noticed this thing um, recently where brands are becoming more personable um, and showing more transparency and, and I guess... I feel like brands are exhibiting more human qualities, um, even though, you know, it really is people having these interactions. Um, the brands are kind of opening up a little bit. And then when you, to, I, I kind of contrast that with the, the personal brand, you know, people trying to build their own profile and people are becoming more brandish or corporate. So, like, I'm such and such and I'm a speaker and consultant and, or whatever. It's like the, the two are kind of going in opposite directions. Do you have any thoughts on that? I certainly do. I, I would, I'm pushing back. I think it's convergence. <laughs> sure. Uh, the reason for it is that the opportunities to interact with employees now is such a greater level. So as I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, it used to be the 30-second spot kind of thing, right? That's really old hat. But that was how branding was largely communicated, uh, as you say, through, you know, press or whatever. Now we have so many different channels that there's somebody on the keyboard that is typing. There is somebody on the Skype video that is speaking. 
whatever the, the, the purpose, whether it's for social media or for customer service or um, chat rooms or sales, these are all happening through people. And so there's an opportunity for the brand to be lived and vehicled by employees all the time. At the same time, these very same channels are creating exposure of employees. So they're no longer behind the wall. And therefore, it, it's, it behooves individuals to be able to hone their image online. If it's very possible to type in my name, Minchadile, and find out about me, despite the fact that I might work behind a closed wall, mm-hmm. well, you do need to know what's being found about you. The first thing that anyone does before they do a meeting these days, basically, if I don't know you, I'm going to type you in my friend Google. What's Google going to tell me? If Google tells me that there is nothing on you, well, then that tells me something about you. Mm-hmm. So you need to, in other words, if you don't exist on Google, then huh, what, do you have to, what are you hiding? Or how bad are you at business? These are the types of thoughts that can go through. Of course, I'm being a little bit, um, let's say, reductionist because not everyone does this all the time. And, and, uh, and maybe it's more a quote-unquote younger kind of thing. But it's, it's, um, it's evident that uh, brands have the opportunity to become more personable thanks to the new media that has disintermediated the television and allowing for direct access. And on the other side, individuals have this opportunity and need to craft their own personal brands. And the question then becomes, how do you unify or align those two brands? Mm. Which this is the big issue, because especially when you believe that your employees, as I do, must be your number one fans. Well, there, there needs to be a total congruency and, and fluidity between my own personal brands and the company's brands. And, I, what I, and just to clarify, I don't mean that 100% overlay. You can have personal values that are not aligned with your company, but you must have some that are overlapping. Yeah, and, and does that really just come down to good human resourcing and finding and actually hiring people that exemplify the brand's qualities or are there other... Because you consult with businesses on these very issues, right? So, I certainly do. How, how do you structure, how do you bring this concept to life? All right, well, you of course, there's a sort of first notion of figuring out who you are, what your values are, and how do you break those down into your languages, your behaviors, your codes, your habits, and your, um, let's say, your traditions within your company. These are how your values are expressed on a daily basis. And that needs to be tailored and understood. And of course, we're not talking about being 100% ascetic and, and neat and proper. But generally speaking, you work on those. Then the second thing is you need to hire for attitude. You don't hire for skills. You mm-hmm. hire for attitude. And, uh, of course, you do need certain skills. That that's sort of goes without saying. But generally speaking, you need to hire for attitude, hire for mindset. And, and if you focus on that, then you have a great opportunity to find greater alignment amongst the employees. So, Missy, you're a bit of a technophile, I suppose, um, and you actually did a, a presentation at um, NetExplo. Is that how you pronounce it? Indeed, NetExplo, yes, an observatory out of France. It, it, it was a really fascinating presentation, and I'll, I'll link up the uh, slide share deck into the show notes. But um, I kind of just wanted to spend a couple of moments talking about you know, new technology and how that's changing the way businesses interact. We've touched on that kind of 
very broadly so far in this conversation, but what are some of the really interesting startups that you've seen recently um, that are changing the way that brands are communicating? All right. So, I want to start with one sort of meta trend, which I tend to talk about, at least in these current environment, this current environment. And that is that we are seeing a blurring of the lines between technology and human. And whether it is technology that is augmenting human, transhumanism, or human that is augmenting technology, somewhere along the lines, it's very murky to know whether it's a technology or whether it's a human component. We're, we're now in the point where we're inserting technology into the human body and, and we're also using the human brain to augment technology as in um, deep mind and so on. So the, it's, it's an extraordinarily interesting uh, space to be in these days. I want to talk about one example that was recently uh, done and it's, it was down in Chile and it concerns a... Uh, a young professor who kind of technophile who um, observed there was one kid in his class who had, was missing an arm. And the arm, um, he had a prosthetic that was, of course, crafted by the hospital and he put on, but everyone used to tease him. And so he didn't like it when the other children teased that child. So what could he do to figure it out? So he ended up crafting um, a, a relationship with Lego. Mm -hmm. and, of course, with some scientists, and they were able to create a prosthetic arm that wasn't some mechanical arm that comes out of the 19th century H.G. Wells, but was something that was more like a toy. The objective was, of course, to be functional, but also to make it feel like it was his, mm -hmm. for his age, adapted for him. So he, with Lego, he, they managed to create a, a prosthetic arm where he could adapt the end to whatever he wanted it to be. So if you can imagine, instead of having necessarily a hand, it could be a saber to, write, to fight in Star Wars, or it could be a crane to pick up the, the, the toy train, uh, train on my desk. That, that then became no longer a foreign object, but his object. But the point that was really strong about this one, and I'll explain to you why I'm telling the story afterwards, was that it didn't necessarily stop the teasing because it was a sort of a strange object. What he wanted to do was to go from it being his arm to the school or their, their arm. So what he did is he asked all the, the kids whether they would share their Lego to be able to create his arm. So we, we went into a collaborative mode. Mm -hmm. All the kids said, I'm happy to give one of my pieces of Lego. So instead of being his arm, it became our arm crowdfunding <laughs> and and yeah so and this is this is that you know these are eight-year-old kids yeah right around around lego so the point is here that um what was happening was that this professor was looking at the usages was looking at it from a customer-centric perspective in this case a kid what goes in with great empathy to the mind of this individual who's using this prosthetic arm what kind of brands can I associate with that would have a cause that they would think interesting enough to invest in? And they think of it more as the cause as opposed to the money. And then ultimately look at it in a collaborative mode. How can we bring in more people, UGC, into this environment? So the point of my breaking this up is it's not 
This was not a high-tech idea. What this was was using technology for a purpose and, and having the right mindset around it in order for it to come alive. And so this guy didn't say, I want to make, this, I want to make money out of this. He was, he was, there was a need, solving that need and being inventive, agile about how he was going to come up with a solution. And, and this was not done in Silicon Valley. This was not done in Shoreditch. This was done in the middle of a wonderful place, of course, but not exactly where you expect to find innovation. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's, it's, it's heartwarming, but effective. That's great. Exactly. And so afterwards, you, you ask more about communication. And I think that uh, it's, it's less about the, you know, whether you use Snapchat or, or you know, Facebook or whatever for your messaging. There, there's so many things going on. Then afterwards, it becomes specific examples. And I think that the, um, in, in this area, um, in terms of communication, it's down to a campaign more than a new technology for communicating. There are many, so many things going on within that, whether, whether it's dark, dark messaging or um, uh, I, one thing I have seen a lot of recently is in um, HR tech where you have uh, opportunities to use tools to recruit people at scale. And I think there's a lot of really interesting applications using artificial intelligence, using the net to allow companies to hire at scale for lower level types of jobs. And that's a, there are a lot of uh, initiatives I've seen coming out of Asia in that. Mm-hmm. The final theme that I wanted to ask you about was digital strategy, which is nice because we've kind of laddered up to that from every other angle so far. So, we've, we've spoken about how the digital landscape has changed in recent years. And I think listeners of this podcast um, would be quite a, well aware of, of kind of what's happening. How does all of this change in the environment? How do we need to deal with that as a brand, as a company? How do, like internally, how do we process that and how do we change the way that we approach our communications? And not just communications, but the way that we speak with customers in, in terms of a dialogue. It's a big topic, right? So the, the ba- let's say that I thought it's that broad, and then we'll kind of bring it in, it. right? Well, the basic theme uh, that people use as a name for it is digital transformation, and the the issue is that for as far in my experience that digital transformation works best under two conditions. One is you have a strong and very clear strategy, and two, you have a CEO and C-suite that are extremely happy, A, to learn about new tricks, and two, to admit their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. When you have those two conditions, then you have a greater opportunity to implement a new, you know, or use digital, if you will, to drive your strategy. The the embedded in the first point is that when you're trying to use digital or get digital or transform digitally, the key thing is to consider how digital is going to help you with regard to your strategy. What is your overall strategy and what kinds of things within digital can you use to help drive that strategy? And it might be 1%. It might be 2 I don't. I use numbers just for allegory. It might be 99%. But the problem is that people sort of say, well, how can we use Facebook? Well, well what's your problem? What are you trying to achieve? Mm, to do what? Maybe... Yeah, and maybe it's Snapchat, maybe it's a telephone, maybe it's a fax machine. What are we trying to achieve? 
Then the other thing I would like to, I mean, address in, in what you said, Adam, was the, the notion of communicating with customers. One of the things I observe is that we are, the customer's expectations and habits are changing at such a greater rate than within, employee, within companies. And the main reason for, the, for that is we're not modeling the behavior within the company that we expect to have without the company. So if you if you on social media are saying, well, we get we promise to get back to you within 24 hours, do you actually have a policy within your company that people should reply to your email within 24 hours? Yay or nay? If you don't, then good luck getting your social media teams up, you know, ability to re- reply within 24 hours. Because by the way, of course, the social media person who, if they in the best cases are internal to the company, but in the worst cases are exported out into some agencies managing that so that when Julie or Jim who's the social media the community manager contacts big social senior vice president hi my name's Jim and I I I need some help I've got a question on my Facebook wall there are what and so senior vice president says well I don't have time for this who the hell are you why are you contacting me and you wonder why digital doesn't work within companies yeah it's so funny because I've seen all of these problems <laughs> occur, you know, right back to what you were saying at the start where you need a C-suite who's willing to admit um, that there's an issue and, and be open to learning. And I'm like, hmm, I've been in some situations where that's not been the case. And it's the very reason why things uh, are not transforming at the rate that they need to be. So, yeah. And and one thing I might kind of add to what you said there is um, customer expectations are changing at a rapid rate, not just based on um, what they expect within one particular vertical, but based on what they see in the marketplace in general. So, now I can order a a car, an Uber, direct to my location within like two minutes and get great service every single time. Now, I transfer that expectation onto other situations. You know, I go and pay for something in the grocery store and I'm I'm using a self-serve checkout and it takes me 20 steps to to pay for something and the the computer's really slow and I'm like geez I can I can order a car from my phone in one tap why can't Coles or Woolworths or whoever um, figure out how to fix this fucking supermarket thing right and it's a completely separate problem and and the technology that they're using is totally different but my expectations are transferred so that's the challenge that I think a lot of businesses also need to deal with um, because th- they're not recognizing that whether it's your 6S or your 4S or your 5E or your phone in general, is, is, the, is, the, is the glue that's making all of that so much more uh, painful and real in real time. Of course, there's the general internet in general, but the fact is the ubiquity of the mobile phone. As you go into that grocery store, it's making everything accessible and, and real time and fast. And so, whatever that, that, that Uber experience is, is for you, it is bleeding into everything else. And the phone is giving that, that sort of the, op, the, sort of the um, accelerator ability. Yeah, it's the on-demand economy, right? Yeah. Um, I, I just got back from a trip uh, in the US and um, I learned this new term over there that they, as it's a, it's a new buzzword they use, it's uh, SOMO, which stands for social and mobile, which is, you know, obviously the emerging um, areas that everybody's focusing on. So, I just wanted to get that on the record here on the podcast that I'm the first Australian to coin that. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, 
So, one thing that's been fascinating me uh, over probably the last, say, five years, um, there's been a huge shift in digital strategy. What we used to do was- We'd have a bunch of social media channels and we'd have Google AdWords and we'd be doing SEO and all kinds of stuff. Uh, And we would drive all our traffic back to one destination, our core website. Um, It's what has, I guess, been referred to as the hub and spoke model, where the the hub is the central, um, the centerpiece and all the spokes point back to the middle. Um, But that's kind of not happening anymore. Um, a lot of uh, social channels are making that uh, difficult. Um, they're prioritizing content posted natively on their own channel, things like Facebook video, um, Snapchat, you can't get anything in or out of. Um, so, uh, I guess it, it's one, becoming difficult, but two, um, the, the actual strategy is changing. So, I just want to get your thoughts um, and then I can kind of- um, we can have a bit of a back and forth on it. But what do you think brands should be doing now that that's no longer the case? And and we're living in this fragmented world where everything is um, everything is everywhere and you need to be everywhere. All right. So, my first point is I it may be happening, but I think it's possibly more because of the brand's fault as opposed to what they should be doing. Hmm. So, my- the way I, I talk about this is that there are two parts to your hub that you must continu- continue to nurture. The first is your website, and the second is your email list. These are your media. You own them. And as much as they may no longer be working according, you know, for some companies, the issue is, well, I think they're not coming to your site because you're full of shit. <laughs> They're not coming to your site because there's no interaction. You're not coming to your site because there's no interesting blog. They're not coming to your site because you're not authentic. All right, so that's why they're not coming to your site. Or that you know, your discovery is not good. You don't have new, fresh content every, uh, every day or every week or whatever your uh, rhythm should be. So my, my strong conviction is you need to continue to have a strong website. And even more so in the world of paid media. Because let's not fool ourselves, the world of organic free content or free, sorry, free uh, readership is, is soon to be history. Mm-hmm. At the very least, when you're at scale. If not already. If not already. For the smaller companies, you know, you don't have a budget for it, well, then you're going to continue to hope, wish and a prayer. <laughs> for the big companies, it's paid time. And paid time with a little bit of extra juice, and that's your mojo. Oh, look, I, I didn't have to pay for the extra 100 million, 100,000 fans, but I had to pay for the first million. And uh, that's that's sort of where we're we're settling in. So the the notion of having your own space becomes even more important because otherwise, all you're going to be doing is jacking up the amount of money you're going to have to spend in search engine marketing or in AdWords and so on in order for people to come. So you want to make a, a location where people come, where you don't, where where people want to come. That said, for some a lot of companies. You need to go where your customers are. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to counterpoint that with as much as you might want to drive your hub, and I think that's necessary, email and website, you also need to be where your customers are. And so if they're on Snapchat, it's unfortunate because you can't save anything. It's just a, an ephemeral experience, but that's where you need to be. Yeah, you kind of preempted my, my next question I was going to ask. So... You know, what is the what is the strategy for social then? I know that's a really difficult question. I'm asking you to, I guess, um, drill down uh, 
what could be a, uh, a huge piece of work for a client, but how should we at least be thinking about approaching social? Is it just a traffic driver or is it an engagement platform or is it uh, a place where we post all of our content or is it all of the above? Well, I think it, it can be. The, for me, it's back to like the digital strategy point is what are you trying to achieve? Where, what are your issues? And then how can social be an answer to that? And then within social, break it down. Because now it's not about social. It's about whether I'm on Instagram or whether I should be on Facebook. And if I'm on Facebook, should I be doing a page? Should I, what, what, am I, what should I be doing on Facebook? Customer service? What, do I want to go with e-commerce? Or what am I trying to achieve with social? And so afterwards, I think that there's a, a massive need to be more f- laser focused on what we're trying to do, which doesn't stop the need to keep on experimenting and learning about what's going on. But in terms of the way we spend our money, and we will be spending our money uh, because that's, it's no longer a free ride, to use social. Well, we do it like with any other investment we're making. What are we trying to achieve and what's our ultimate return on objective, mm-hmm. return on um, investment? Yeah. And, and look, Minta, that's, that's a common theme that's kind of run through a lot of these podcasts. Um, I think, you know, knowing what you're trying to achieve and, and going right up to the top and saying, what's the, the brand objective? And then what's our digital objectives? And then what's our social objectives that fit within those? And it's all, all got to ladder up right back to the top. It does. Yet, uh, most companies don't have that sorted out. So, <laughs> it's really a, a problematic thing. So, for example, you know, my, my objective uh, could be expressed as, well, we need to do uh, 11% growth this year. And, and everything is driven around that. And my, my supreme brand, you know, my major brand, well, that's the one I really want, I want to focus on. That one needs to grow 13% so that the other ones are only going to grow 8% on average. And that's how I get my 11%. That's my strategy. I'm like, well, no. Yeah, I'd argue that that's like that's part of your strategy, but you need you definitely need more to it than that. Oh well, yeah. Well, I mean, th- th- this is sort of the table stakes. That's what. You, of course, you have that. That's your financial objective. Yeah. You can't go without that. But the point is that if you have a a higher purpose and mission, that will then drive everything else down. Not everybody's going to have a higher purpose or mission, but once you have that that uh, more human touch to your brand then that gives you a lot more opportunities and social has a greater role to play in a human humanized brand. Love it. So, Minto, just a couple of other um, little things to, to wind up. You've been, one, writing a book yep. and uh, two, making a film. So, let's go through the form. Well, t- tell us about both of them. Uh, well, uh, so, uh, I have written and uh, be published on the 5th of November my first book, which is called The Last Ring Home. It's also the title of a documentary um, film, half-hour film. It's going to be aired down in Australia and in New Zealand on November 11 on the History Channel. Congratulations. Thank you. Is a, uh, it's also being shown on PBS in America. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a story about my grandfather, who was a prisoner of war of the Japanese in the Second World War and was killed after two and a half years of um, horrendous treatment. And then the magic happens. Because uh, the last object he touched before he died was his ring. And that ring then goes on a 17-year journey that basically goes over 40,000 miles and finally ends back up in my family's hands. So that, this, that's what the story is, The Last Ring Home. And uh, that's coming out in, um, in November. So for those of you down under, please do check it out on the History Channel. And, it, and it's on uh, Amazon already for pre-sale. 
The Last String Home. But then the second book that I am working on, and that's for the spring, is all about disruptions. That's a business book, back to you know, the normal topic for your audience, um, where I'm going to be looking at, and I'm co-writing that with um, my pal Caleb Storky. And this is a book looking at uh, these disruptive forces. And the angle I'm taking here is to look at disruption, not necessarily just through technology, but disruption of the mindset. So that's the, um, that's the fun secret sauce. You're a sucker for punishment, Minta. <laughs> I am. I, I already have 50,000 words of my third book already lined up. So. Wow. Because <gasps> writing a book is not an easy feat. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's <laughs> impressive. Um, tell people where they can find you and your company online. So with pleasure uh, and uh, with fun and I get back to people. So uh, my company is called The Mindset. M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com. And it's putting the Y back into business. That's why it's spelled with a Y. Uh, otherwise known as the purpose. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at M-Dial, M-D-I-A-L. And otherwise, you can find me. That's the benefit of having been um, named by my parents with a strange name, Minter Dial. You can <laughs> find me everywhere. I cannot hide. Why didn't you get uh, at Minter? Well, so I tried. Um, so it turns out when I started off looking for this. I wanted the shortest one. And um, I went for at Minter and it was already taken. Uh, I, I was on Twitter within the first 10 months or so of it being up and live. But already Minter is a last name, actually. Right. So some called last name Minter took it. Then I tried on Facebook. The, um, uh, there was one time, I don't know if you remember, at midnight where they were going for the... Um, uh, the name, you know, what do they call it? Uh, you, 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 when you can add your name as opposed to a number. The vanity and, URL. Yeah. So I that at midnight that night, I was in Canada, I think, at the time. <laughs> um, I tried to get it, and uh, it was taken at midnight. So what I wow. assumed was that somebody within Facebook had already taken uh, at Minter. So I have tried, generally speaking, to go with MDL. So the only thing about that for the Spanish speakers is that MDL is short for Mundial. So when it comes down to the uh, football world championships, El Mundial, my M dial just gets completely overtaken. <laughs> uh, and finally, who should I interview next on Mate? Well, my strong recommendation would be my pal Caleb Storky, uh, so with whom I'm writing my second book. So he is a what? What? Why I love Caleb is that as opposed to me, I tend to sort of deal with C-suites and old, I want to careful my words, old people, <laughs> gray-haired old people. Uh, Caleb is a- It's all right. The gray-haired old people won't listen to this podcast, so you can call them what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, people like me. What's, know, a, what's and, a podcast? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Caleb is somebody who's ex- got an amazing energy and also is very operational and brings really concrete, useful uh, tools and tips uh, down to the business people who are listening to this. So that's who I recommend, Caleb Storky. Sure. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. This was uh, educational and a lot of fun. Super. It was my pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mate. And thank you, Minta, for coming on the show. Um, now, a few of the dates that Minta mentioned were in 2016. So, if you're interested in checking out Minta's books or the film, 
um, I've actually provided some links in the show notes. So head to matepodcast.com slash 15 and you can find all the resources there. This episode was edited by Josh Armour from ArmorPod Productions. And the music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. Mate Podcast continues to bring you the best and brightest guests from around the world. But as always, it was made with love in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. This was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. I am talking. Can you hear me? Nope. <laughs>